One Week Season. season fam. JM to win here. Welcome to the week one edition of the OWS Angles podcast. Week one, does it get any better than this? I can actually say that now because with all the extra help on the site, the lead up to the season is a little bit less intense and a little bit more enjoyable. I feel like I have my feet under me for week one better than I have the last couple years. It's a nice feeling heading into the weekend. One of the things, tying in that idea of the help of the team, one of the things that's helped me to feel like I have my feet under me this week is there's a lot of value in, I guess I'll say it like this. We've had so many subscribers over the years who have said that they used to have five or six subscriptions and now they have one or two. And they've said that their process has improved as they've done that, because they have fewer voices coming at them, fewer ideas. But one of the things that you find is a lot of DFS subscriptions, obviously, are focused on who the good plays are. And so I think it was in Mike Johnson's player pool course in the marketplace. He said, you know, you can find a case for basically any player on any given week on one site or another. And that's why having so many subscriptions it can bombard you with so many different thoughts and ideas and plant all these seeds in your mind of, oh, wait, this is a good play. And then you're harvesting that thought, but then you see another plant popping up. It's like, oh, this is a good play too. Maybe I should harvest this thought as well. And by the time you're heading into the weekend, instead of narrowing things down as you move through the week, instead, by the time you get to Saturday, your player pool is so overwhelmed with players that you really don't even know what to do, where to start, how to put a roster together. So obviously one of the things that we do is work from a different angle at OWS. We spend a lot of time talking about putting rosters together and what that looks like and how you can formulate rosters that give you a better shot at first place than other types of rosters. And certainly better than just putting a bunch of players you like onto one build and hoping that it does well, hoping that you guessed right on nine different spots. But with that Getting outside of your own mind a little bit can be extraordinarily valuable as well because the deeper you get into the week, if you follow kind of the OWS thought process of, hey, look, we're starting with 13 games in the case of week one, and we're going to narrow things down as we move throughout the week to, okay, which games look good, which players from these games are likely to succeed, which players from some other games that maybe the game itself isn't that great, but there's a concentrated offense. So here's another place that we can sort of dig in and mine some points. And what can end up happening is you end up digging so deep into particular spots that you continue to reconfirm your bias about those spots and feel more and more confident that you really can't necessarily see how that play could miss. And that play, since we're talking to an OWS audience, that play doesn't necessarily mean that player. It could mean a two-player block or a three-player block or whatever the case might be. And you might start finding that your thoughts are getting confined to a particular strategy angle or a particular set of plays. So it was really cool for me being able to read the scroll this week And obviously, if you've read the scroll by now, you see that there are a lot of overlapping thoughts from the team as a whole as far as which strategy angles give us the best leverage this week, which strategy angles give us the best shot at first place, which players fit into those strategy angles, which players have a better shot than the field will assume of having a big game. So certainly there's an element of reading through the scroll and finding a lot of things like, okay, so I feel pretty confident that I'm looking at the right things here, looking at the right things here. But there's also, there were just snippets from different writers, and I'll get to this in a moment, snippets that made me reassess the way I was approaching the strategy on the slate. And I was thinking last night about basically this idea of you push, 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 push. Sometimes you got to step back and regroup a little bit. And so it's like you can push 
and then step back and let all the pieces settle in. And one of the things that it's easy to get into the habit of as a DFS player is trying to find answers. And that means that on Thursday, you're trying to find like, okay, who am I going to play at running back this week and make a firm and final decision? We talk about this a lot on the site, but just it's it's human nature to crave stability. It's human nature to crave some level of certainty. So saying I'm going to wait until Saturday night to make my final decisions or Sunday morning to make my final decisions on these things, that can freak some people out in terms of their DFS play. And what they want to do is drill down and have certain spots already decided before we get to the weekend. And there's certain things like I said in the player grid, I said probably earlier in the week as well, that I'll play Kyle Pitts on all my rosters. And I laid out the case for that angle, that approach. That's not to say that Kyle Pitts is guaranteed to have a big game. It's just to say, as you understand, that he's the likelihood of him having a big game is greater than the case stated by his price tag. And to enough of an extent that it offsets the ownership as well. So again, I broke this down in the player grid and again in the Oracle, but there's also a very clear case to be made that Kyle Pitts is not a must play this week. If he were 5% owned, then he would be deemed a must play because he has probably about a 25% chance of going 4X to 5X his salary at a position where it's really difficult to find that in other spots. And even though you know some other tight ends might hit that big game, you also know that if you leave Kyle Pitts, now you're guessing in other spots. So there are always spots where you can kind of think through all the angles and, and optimally keep challenging your perspective on what you're seeing, what you're saying. But you can kind of have a few things figured out early in the week. But but more than that, the focus should be on getting closer and closer and closer to the right answer so that when the time comes, you're able to make the right decisions so that when Sunday morning comes, you're already 80, 85, 90, 95% of the way there in terms of what strategies you're wanting to attack, what players you're wanting to use within these strategies. Optimally, by that point, you've messed around with roster construction. So you see how the different pieces fit together on the slate that week. And then you're able to kind of go in and put together your final builds. So for me, that's late Saturday night. For you, it might be Saturday afternoon. It might be Saturday night. It might be Sunday morning. But the idea is, and, and if you have a roster that's set early in the week, and, I, and it's different for different types of players too, right? So Cubs fan is a max multi-entry DFS player but he also doesn't use an optimizer. So he's not going to sit down on Saturday afternoon and churn out 150 lineups by hand. You're going to be 40 or 50 lineups in, and then you're just going to be going through the motions after that, right? So I've talked about this before. He builds lineups throughout the week at different points in the day to essentially capture his mind in different states and piece things together. When I used to be a single entry player and had more time because I didn't have OWS. And especially before I was writing the NFL edge and before the NFL edge got super hefty, I would build some of you probably remember this. I would build 70 to 80 to 90 rosters a week as a single entry player. And so again, for me, it was just getting a sense of what the slate looks like, how the pieces fit together. What I've called it is making the slate more flexible for ourselves. So that by the time that we're, whether it's, you know, you come across that one roster that you're like, okay, well, this is, this is it. And then you poke holes in it and maybe you improve it a little bit, but essentially you have your, your, the framework of your build, or maybe it's, you get to, sometimes for me, it was, I'd get to Saturday and I still didn't have an answer. I still didn't have a roster, but I had all these builds that I'd done and all these thoughts I'd built up. And so I was able to kind of go in there and piece things together. So depending on the amount of time you have in your week for this stuff, you might not have time to build 80 rosters. I will mention, right, Cubs fan works a full-time job and his time and his intelligence are are valuable to that job. And what I mean by his intelligence is his his ability to be on his game is important for his job. And so being busy doesn't preclude you from being able to build a bunch of rosters. If DFS is something that you're enjoying and something that you're like, Hey, look, I think I can make money off of this. I 
have clearly learned more than most of my competition will ever know about how DFS works and how to win in DFS. So let me apply myself to this and let me sort of carve out shape throughout my week to be able to do this. When I was building 80 rosters, Abby and I were kind of traveling around whenever and wherever we wanted. And I would build these rosters on the go. I'd build them in my mind. Sometimes I'd build four or five rosters in my mind. And then once I had a chance to pick up my phone, I'd, I'd hammer them in. Right. So there are certainly ways to do that as well, to carve out space in your week, to be a better DFS player and to make the slate more flexible for yourself. Okay. So going back to this idea of reading the scroll. So I want to lay this out because this is important as well. Hilo plays primarily three entry max and single entry at mid to high stakes. Zandamir on the main slate is typically focused on something like the slant where he'll put in anywhere from 50 to 100 to 150 rosters. Sonic is primarily focused on the Millie Maker, where he will put in 150 rosters. Larejo is primarily focused on large field tournaments, where he's going to put in a smaller number of rosters. Magico is primarily focused on high-dollar, small-field tournaments. I will be primarily focused this year on tournaments of anywhere from 500 to 5,000 entries, three entry max, single entry, mid stakes to high stakes. So basically the same type of setup as Hilo this year. So as you read different people's pieces in the scroll, take what we've talked about on the site for years about how you approach different types of tournaments, how you approach a tournament where other people are putting in 150 entries and you're only putting in five or 10. What do you need to do? What do you need to do and look for in that type of tournament? What do you need to do and look for in a three entry max or a single entry tournament? What do you need to do in those tournaments when you get up to even smaller fields, whether that's because you're playing super high stakes or because you're playing you're scrolling down the DraftKings lobby and finding those tournaments that's, for example, say a $12 entry and only 300 entries in the tournament, right? Those are tremendous bankroll building tournaments. And you can kind of get practice for what it looks like to build for those high dollar small field tournaments and build up your bankroll through these lower entry small field tournaments. So you get practice in playing that game type. And then once you hit a couple times, now you have the bankroll to move up to the high dollar small field contests with confidence that you already know how to play those contests. So I talked about this and I'll, I'll, I'll throw this in here. I talked about this in a bonus segment that I did for inner circle the other night, but you, you want to go into the season with an idea, with an understanding of what types of contests you're going to be playing. If every week you're playing different types of contests, or if every week you're just clicking on the top couple contests in the DraftKings lobby and not thinking through what you're building toward or what it takes to win that particular type of tournament or to build a process toward winning that particular type of tournament, you're putting yourself at a huge disadvantage. You're, I'll say it like this. So last night I was, I was listening to an old angles podcast to try to get my feet under me. Eight, eight months is a long time to go between recording these. So getting a sense of the flow of these podcasts and preparing for today's podcast. And I think I was listening to week 10 of last year. And one of the things I said was in order to win first place in a tournament, you're not competing against the casual players. You're competing against them to cash in those tournaments. Sure. But for first place, you're competing against Awesomeo, you're competing against Petty Theft, you're competing against Cubs fan, you're competing against Sonic, you're competing against these guys who know what they're doing and are able to build 150 lineups knowing what they're doing and knowing what they're doing with 150 lineup build so that it's actually plus EV over time for them to be building 150 lineups. So if you don't understand, okay, I am building for this type of tournament. There are these types of players putting in 150 lineups. I'm only putting in 10, but I still want to compete for first place. So what does my thinking need to look like 
for that. And then once you've established what your thinking needs to look like for that, your process throughout the week can be geared toward finding those types of plays. So Larejo laid out in his Willing to Lose article in the scroll that part of his process is writing down all the players who are going to be on the field for every team. So if he were playing single entry, three entry max in contest sizes of 500 to 5,000 entries, that would be an unnecessary step in his process because he wouldn't have any need to be thinking about that third or fourth wide receiver. In the types of contests where you're competing against a smaller field, and a smaller number of rosters being entered, one of the things that you should overemphasize is finding guaranteed points, whether that's in blocks of guaranteed points or concentrated offenses or players who have a very secure role and optimally are going a little bit overlooked. And if you're playing in a contest where you're putting in five or 10, I mean, this is, there's a podcast that we link to from time to time. Where can you find it? You can find it in the archives. Uh, This is complicated, but um, go to archives Uh, classroom, and then the DFS training page. But uh, you can find a podcast in there where Larejo breaks down his sixth place Millie Maker finish where he had three rosters entered. So think about that. If you're entering three rosters in the Millie Maker and trying to beat 200,000 entries, what are you looking for in that situation? What types of players? What type of roster constructions? And so then you can build your process toward building for those types of contests. So Going back to that idea that I brought up in Inner Circle, know what types of contests you are planning to focus on and give yourself at least seven or eight weeks so that you can grow and develop a process. It's one of the reasons why, since we started the site, I've kind of shifted my play style uh, pretty much from year to year is because it allows me for, especially when I was kind of providing most of the content on the site, it allows me to break down different play styles. So when I was just a single entry player, there was less that I could provide to you. And so that was 2019 that I decided around week five or six or seven, like, okay, I'm going to try to win the Wildcat this year and I'm going to do it with 14 to 19 rosters most weeks. And I'm going to build a process around that and I'll track my process for you guys and we'll see what ends up happening here. And that was basically an opportunity for me to say, okay, what is my, for my mind, the way my mind works, what is my optimal process for building for this type of tournament? And then how do I want to attack a block of 14 to 19 rosters when this is, it was a, it's about a five, 3,000 to 5,000 entry tournament, but it's 150 max because it's, it's a high dollar tournament. And so it's this weird mix of 150 max, but relatively smaller field. And so what do I want to do to give myself the best shot at first place out of a field of only about 5,000 entries, but also knowing that I'm competing against some really sharp players who are putting in up to 150 lineups. And then again, start building your week around the fact that you're building toward this particular type of tournament. So in that inner circle segment, I also went through my entire week of how I narrow down my player pool and build it by the end of the week. Uh, We won't get into all of that here, obviously, but if you're an inner circle member, I encourage you to check that out as well. So going back to the idea of getting outside of your mind a little bit, reading the scroll, even though it was, even though there's, there's guys in there leaving thoughts that are, have a different play style than me. Being able to take a step back from being so deep into my own mind and instead of seeing the small picture, which is what I'm like deep down into at, the, at that point, step back and see the big picture again, regroup. So I'm at a point in the week where I'm narrowing down things. I'm getting closer and closer to what my player pool is going to look like, what my rosters are going to look like. And then I'm going to take a step back and say, okay, what else is out here that I might be missing? And probably three times from Thursday afternoon to right now, which is Friday afternoon, I have kind of reorganized my player pool and my strategies and my pairings, player pairings, like two guys from this game together, two guys from this offense together, three guys from this game together. And again, I'm not necessarily putting them onto rosters yet, but I'm just laying all this out. Okay, here's a block of three players that I'm thinking about 
playing this week. Here's a block of two players that I want to get on a couple of my three or four rosters. Here's a group of three or four players from this game that I don't necessarily want to focus on on more than one roster, but I want to make sure that I have that on one roster. And so I'll kind of figure out how I want to maneuver through that. And basically saying I'm not rethinking my entire player pool at this point. I'm just making sure that I'm reassessing things, regrouping. And I think that the fear that people have, the the two, a lot of things, a lot of mistakes in DFS are fear-based. And one of the fears that people have that leads to them having these massive player pools is it's a, it's always like, oh, I don't want to miss out on a big game from this guy. The other fear, the reverse of that is, well, I was on this guy all week. I don't want to move off of him at this point because if this guy has a big game, I'll be so frustrated. I was on him until Friday and then I moved off of him on Saturday. So what helps in all of this is remembering that we're not in the business of trying to predict player performance. We understand that guys are going to pop off who we don't have. We understand the guys who we have are going to disappoint. We're trying to get a sense of what's likeliest to happen. This prevents you from getting down into the plays that, yeah, they could hit, but the probability of them hitting is low enough that over time you're going to be losing money on these plays. Or, yeah, sometimes you're going to have a player you were on, you moved off of them, but other weeks you're going to have a player you weren't on and you moved onto them. You're not going to get everything right every single week, but if you're constantly approaching things with the right process and the right mindset, you can position yourself to be in constantly plus EV territory. You can position yourself to have a consistent edge over the field. And as long as the process is good, it doesn't necessarily matter if you quote guessed right on that particular week because the process is going to pay off over time. I mean, it matters a little bit because you'd love to have the week where you guess right and you win all the money. But guessing wrong isn't a flaw in process as long as you're right there with the super sharp player pool and an understanding of how to put these pieces together. Because over time, no matter what, it's like what Blender talks about. You could just look at projections and ownership projections and do a better job than most people who think that their edge is picking players. You could look at the GPP ceiling tool on Saturday night when the projections are going to be at their sharpest Saturday night or Sunday morning when the projections are going to be at their sharpest, when the ownership projections are going to be at their best You could take everything we talk about from a strategy perspective. You could find the high-owned plays and then find the low-owned plays from optimally from that game or that create some other different type of direct leverage. You could pick a couple spots where you say, okay, if this guy fails, the field will get hurt because he's highly owned and I'll benefit doubly because I'm also rostering this guy who might succeed if this guy fails, or this guy who also has a high probability of succeeding and is on none of the rosters with this guy because of the way pricing works out, or whatever the case is. There's no need to bend over backward trying to get things down to the finest possible point, thinking that you're going to perfectly predict things every week, and then be upset with yourself each week that you don't perfectly predict everything and then spend a bunch of time reassessing how you're trying to predict everything. You're going to make a lot more money over time just playing good DFS and letting the player pool fall to you. So we talk a lot about how to maximize that player pool and gain an edge in that way. But if you're not doing it with good DFS theory behind it, you're not going to be making money anyway. So Just a few thoughts, a few tips on how to kind of get to that final point in your player pool and then also kind of let go of those those fear-based thoughts that can keep you from pulling the trigger on some plays. So I will probably have an update in the player grid on Saturday evening, Saturday night based on you know, it's it's week one, so we like to get content out a little bit early and it's week one, which means I'm extraordinarily busy. So uh, I've obviously carved out the space for all of my DFS prep and content, but it's been a lot of, it's been a lot of, well, I said to Roto Maven, my schedule is, is almost, is almost down to the minute this week. And so it's like, okay, this work task ends here and I have this window to 
work on my player pool, work on the player grid, whatever it might be. And then it's trying to click my brain over to that part of my brain and do an excellent job on that task. And so uh, anyhow, between the busyness of week one and the scroll and player grid coming out Thursday night, uh, I'll probably have a few adjustments to exactly how I'm seeing things. I mean, you know, like 10, 15% adjustments to how I'm seeing things. We'll actually hit on some of them in the angles podcast, but look for an update on Saturday night that will be posted at the bottom of the player grid. Hey, let's make it fun. Let's post it at the top of the player grid. That way it's easy for you to find. And with that, let's get to the bottom-up build. Actually, let's wait on that one second. One other thing I wanted to talk about, and this actually came across my mind listening to that old Angles podcast um, as well. How many points is an offense going to score? How many DFS points is an offense going to score? We talk about this. It's the start of the season. It's easy to have forgotten this. I actually had to go back and recalculate the numbers myself once I started. I kind of clicked back and I remembered it all. But basically, take out quarterback. How many points are all of the skill position players on an offense going to score? And first, why is this important? Why is this important? Because if you're stacking an offense, always, 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 we want to demystify the slate as much as we can. We want to eliminate guesswork as much as we can. We want to have as much of an understanding of what's going on as we can possibly have. This is one of the most fundamental, one of the most critical things to understand. And yet it's something that like literally nobody ever thinks about or grasps. How many points are actually available on an offense. So if you're stacking an offense and you're thinking, how many players do I put from this offense? Does this make sense? Well, you know the salary multipliers we're looking for. You know from the NFL Edge, from years of reading the NFL Edge and listening to everything on OWS, you know how an offense runs, whether they spread the ball out to a bunch of different guys, whether they concentrate touches on a handful of players. So talk about demystifying things for yourself. If you can say, well, here's a concentrated offense and take away the quarterback, the skill position players are going to score roughly X number of points. That can help quite a bit in helping you decide how many of those players you want to put onto a roster hoping that you can capture all the points without blocking yourself from a first place finish because you're capping your upside. So typically an offense outside the quarterback, is going to put up 75 to 95 DraftKings points. Teams that throw the ball more are likelier to finish on the higher end of the range because it's PPR. Teams that have a more concentrated distribution of touches are likelier to finish on the higher range because of those three-point bonuses. Teams that score a lot of touchdowns are likelier to finish on the higher end of that range because they get those extra six points and six points and six points and so on. So if you're looking at, well, actually now let's roll into the bottom up build because we have a good example of this coming up right off the top. Bottom up build. If you're new, here's what we do. Our goal is to prevent ourselves from making the mistake that so many DFS players make, which is starting their roster from the top and saying, oh man, I really want to play Christian McCaffrey this week. Oh man, I got to get Devontae Adams in this week. And they start from there and they then start figuring out how they can make those pieces fit. Now on a week like week one, where there's so much salary available, that's not going to kill your roster too much. But by the time we get to week five, or week six, what ends up happening is you get in your head, well, I really want to play these two expensive guys. And then as you start building your roster, the salary doesn't really work for you to play those two expensive guys together. And so you end up forcing in some value, finding some value that you can stomach. We talk about this a lot. Understand what first place rosters look like. Well, for one thing, they're going to score 200 plus points almost inevitably or I should say almost invariably. 
you're going to need 200 plus points for a first place finish. But also, a first place roster oftentimes has one or two, sometimes even three disappointing scores. In fact, I broke down in uh, the live Inner Circle segment on Tuesday, I broke down my Game Changer winner from last year, and it had four players on it. Scored 203 points. Uh, It was a Thanksgiving Day slate, so we were forced to choose from two teams. Uh, but scored 203 points and had four players on it who scored under 17, three players who scored under 14. So you can get 200 plus points with a couple duds. Now, the reverse of that is you need some players who score 35 plus points. And that means you need players on your roster who can score 35 plus points. Furthermore, the guys who you think you're rostering to score 35 plus aren't necessarily going to be the ones who score 35 plus. So your value guys also need to be capable of putting up big games. Now, you're not always going to find a value guy who can put up 30 plus points, but you can't just say, okay, here's a 3K guy. He can get me 12 points. There has to be an element of, yeah, this guy can go for 22, 25 points. So if you start your roster from the top, you can end up almost saying like, okay, well, I've got these six spots covered and then I've got three punts in here. And it's almost like, well, as long as these six guys hit, I'll be in good shape. I can get up to 180, 190 points. And maybe if I get really lucky, I end up over 200. If instead you start from the bottom and what we do with the bottom up build is we don't say who is the cheapest value we can stomach. We say, who are the guys if we start from the bottom up at each position that we would feel good about actually rolling out there on a roster, let's say a three max roster, right? Where we're not just saying, Hey, I'm I'm throwing 150 of these in and I'm trying to beat 200,000 entries. This guy, you know, as a, this is a a guy who plays 15, 20% of the snaps, but he's got a downfield role and he could catch a long touchdown and end up putting up 20 points and nobody has, right. We're not looking for that. We're looking to say like, who's the actual sharp, sharp one. That's, let me rephrase that because that's a sharp play too in the right tournament setting. But we're saying like, who's the the guy who you can actually feel really good about playing this guy if he ends up on a tighter build? So we go position by position. And then the next step, which we added in, I believe we added it in last year, maybe it was two years ago, but is we also use this instead of just looking at salary, We also use this as an opportunity to talk about how to build good rosters by figuring out ways that we're actually leveraging the field. And so in the case of this week's bottom-up build, we spent 38.9K in salary. So we'll look at this roster pretending like we're in a tournament where everybody's working with a 39K salary cap or a 40K salary cap. In other words, what strategic elements would we layer in in order to outmaneuver the field? Additionally, we'll hit on some strategic elements that apply to the larger field with some of these players. So, okay, the bottom-up build. The starting point for this week's bottom-up build should be unsurprising to anyone who has spent time on the site this week. That is Zach Wilson, Corey Davis, and Elijah Moore. Now, this is going to become less sneaky now that it appears Jameson Crowder is not going to be playing in this game. But what makes it set apart is the fact that we would be playing these guys together. And in fact, I'm almost at a point right now. It's it's Friday afternoon. I don't know for sure, but just thinking through this, I'm almost at a point where I would feel very uncomfortable playing Elijah Moore solo in a tournament because he's dramatically mispriced, right? Like he's 3K on DraftKings and let's say that Crowder were out for six weeks. By the end of those six weeks, Elijah Moore would be 5,500, 5,600. So we're getting a guy with a 5,500 role and situation for 3K, essentially adding 2.5K to our salary cap because it's a 52.5K salary cap on the main slate. But with that said, once games start, I say this all the time, once games start, what you paid for a player no longer matters. Once games start, what matters is 
getting first place. What matters is the total score you're able to get from these players. And we see 5K wide receivers fail all the time. It's not unusual to see a guy who's super popular in the 5K range. There's all these narratives about how he's not going to fail and he ends up failing. So Elijah Moore failing in this spot is probably, you're still probably looking at 10, 11, 12 points. That's excellent. But what we're talking about is winning a tournament. And for winning a tournament, we're talking about getting up to 22 to 25 points. I would love to play Elijah Moore in cash games this week with Jameson Crowder out. He's going to open up a lot on your roster and he's probably going to be popular. So if everybody else is getting those points, you're getting those points as well. But in tournaments, he becomes a piece that I'd be much more likely to play as part of a roster block of betting on, basically betting on the fact that between Elijah Moore and Corey Davis, who cost 8K combined, we have a pretty good shot at getting 32 to 40 points, which would be four to five X their combined salary. You get the Elijah Moore points. If he ends up getting 12, 13 points, you're not killing your roster. And you assume that you're getting some lower owned points from Corey Davis. Now, Corey Davis was getting some ownership traction earlier in the week. He'll probably be carrying some ownership as well. I'm thinking that more will get more ownership, but also you guys know I'm not as plugged into industry talk as other DFS players are. And so I might be off on the way that the public is going to be viewing this. And obviously you'll have a better sense of this if you're listening to stuff elsewhere and listening to the chatter around the industry and or if you are looking at ownership projections a day after I'm recording this, a day and a half after I'm recording this. But the uh, the general idea here of playing these guys together is maybe both of them score 16 to 20. Maybe one of them scores 12 and the other scores 20, 22, 25 points. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, 4x to 5x to 6x your salary, if things go really well in this spot, is, is difficult to get. So if you can lock in that salary multiplier that's pretty not not guaranteed. I mean, we're dealing with uncertainty here. We're dealing with a bad team. Like the Jets still don't have a great roster. Uh, the Panthers don't have a great defense, but the Jets also have an implied team total of 20 points and ownership is going to be rising in this spot now that Crowder's out. And I think it was Zandemir mentioned that there has been a lot of chatter around this game in the industry throughout the week. So he could see ownership rising as we get deeper into the week. So again, the beautiful thing about playing these guys together is you offset the guesswork. You know, with with a fairly high degree of certainty that you're getting solid points. I mean, we can break this down even further and say the Jets would optimally love to only throw the ball 30 times. Like that's a pretty fair guess that they'd love to lean on the run. They'd love to have good balance. They'd love, you know, we're going to get a few rushes from Zach Wilson. So give him two, three, four points there. More than that, if we get super lucky, obviously. But let's say 30 pass attempts. That's a pretty low number of pass attempts. And yet it's still difficult to get our projections, like our reasonable projections of, of we play out this late a hundred times, what are we going to see most often? It's pretty tough to get our reasonable projections for targets for these two guys under 16, 17, 18. And if you start looking at different teams and calculating what you pay per target, now, not all targets are created equal, not all offenses are created equal, but Kyle Pitts plus Calvin Ridley, which is a pairing that I really like this week, Hilo broke it down in the scroll. It's a pairing that kind of offsets the ownership, the high ownership on those guys, because again, you get them together, which is a, a combo that not a lot of people will have. Well, you're paying 12.3K in salary, and there's a chance that they get up to 24, 25 targets, but a more reasonable projection is around... 18 to 20 to 22 targets. So again, when you look at paying 8K and getting 16 to 18 targets from these Jets wide receivers, you're getting a really like Kyle Pitts is already really underpriced. And in that Falcons pairing, 1K, every 1K in salary is buying you like 1.8 targets. So think about over here with the Jets to be able to say, hey, I'm probably locking in two targets per 1K spent. And again, if you go through other teams, look at the Bengals wide receivers, you're probably not buying 20 targets from T. Higgins plus Jamar Chase or T. Higgins plus Tyler Board. You're getting close. You're getting 16, 18 targets. But again, you're getting a setup 
you know, pretty similar number of targets to what you get from these Jets guys. Bengals will throw like 38 to 40 times more than likely. And the Jets, again, would love to keep it to 30, 32 pass attempts. But you also have a scenario where maybe this game ends up going in a direction where the Jets have to throw 36 times. 37 times. Uh, these guys then work really well with the Christian McCaffrey roster because you're increasing the chances with McCaffrey of the Jets having to pass a lot if McCaffrey's having a big game because McCaffrey having a big game means the Panthers continuing to feed him, which likely means the Panthers controlling the game and the Jets having to pass a little bit more as they get deeper into the game. So obviously always thinking about how all these pieces fit together, but with this Jets situation, even when a team has a 20-point implied total and doesn't want to throw a bunch, and even if the quarterback's going to take a little bit of the rushing yardage, we're still looking at 70, 65, 70 total DraftKings points outside the quarterback. Even if, even if we say, man, maybe he only throws 26, 27 times. Now, there are games where things just crater out and an offense gets 55 points outside the quarterback. But let's say that the Jets are just like reasonably competitive in this game. Nothing huge. They don't blow up. That 20-point implied team total is pretty sharp. They only score a couple touchdowns. Maybe they push for three touchdowns, but maybe it's just two touchdowns. Even with all of that, we're still looking at 65 to 70 points. And if we're generous and we give 25 points to the backfield and another 15 points to Tyler Croft and some other random, you know, pieces, whoever's out there, like Denzel Mims was working with like the sixth team for part of the summer. Uh, Keelan Cole might not be playing now. So, uh, you know, whoever's out there in that number three role, we give another 15 points to, to Croft and that guy combined. Like that still leaves 25 points for Elijah Moore and Corey Davis. So just understanding that, like understanding the number of points that come from an offense and what you can then reasonably say, okay, well, I can probably, you know, again, demystifying the slate for ourselves, sort of break it down a little bit more deeply. You can say, oh, like, you know, even if things fall apart one way or another, these two guys who cost 8K are, are probably scoring 22, 25 points. I mean, that's 3X their salary. That's not winning you a tournament this week, but also, you know, you spend 8K on 8.6K on Camara, and he gets you 26, 27 points. That's not what you're rostering him for. Now, people who aren't on OWS, they're probably happy with that score. They got their 25-point score. That's not what you're rostering him for because that's not going to win you a tournament with the way you're using your salary. But spending 8K and getting 25 points isn't killing you either. That's not, you know, I said that you can have one or two duds on a roster and sometimes three duds on a roster and win a tournament especially if you're playing something other than, say, the slant and the millie maker, something with 20K or fewer entries, you're going to be in, in solid shape, even if you get 24 points from these guys. Like, that's not an awful output from 8K. That, that doesn't even really count as a, quote, dud. And we haven't even painted the scenario where these guys combine for, where the Jets score 75 or 80 or 85 points as an offense outside of Zach Wilson. And these guys end up combining for a bigger chunk of that. Some of you might remember in 2018 when it was Chris Godwin. Remember, Chris Godwin wasn't a full-time starter yet. Chris Godwin and Adam Humphreys were going to be the only two wideouts from the Bucks. And the whole talk that week was, which of these guys do you play? And I think they probably combined for about the same salary as, as Corey Davis and Elijah Moore. And I said, just, you just play both of them. You just know that you're getting the points and they happened to both hit that week and they combined for like 50 plus points. But even if they hadn't both hit just taking those points, there's so much value in that. So I like the, you know, Corey Davis, you can make a strong case for him as a one-off play. Elijah Moore, you can make a strong case for him as a one-off play. But the strongest case to me is playing them together because you don't have to guess which of them is getting the points. You just take the guaranteed points and roll forward from there. So I expect to have a CMC more Corey Davis roster, potentially with Zach Wilson on it this week. Um, and they fit obviously really well on the bottom up 
build. I'm also going to mention Exploitable Edge, who uh, drops some sharp thoughts in OWS Collective from time to time as well. Exploitable Edge on Twitter guessed my bottom-up build and got seven out of nine spots right, including Zach Wilson and Elijah Moore, not Corey Davis, because he probably expected me to uh, say 4900 as too expensive on a bottom-up build on this week. But I wanted to hit on that three-player pairing and kind of break it down a little bit and tie it into that idea of understanding how many points are available on an offense and how that can help us demystify the slate a little bit. Next two guys I'm not going to spend time on because they were both covered in the player grid. Uh, well, I mean, I guess the Jets were as well, but there was some discussion points we were able to kind of drill down on there from a strategy and DFS play standpoint. Running back, Najee Harris, 6,300, Mike Davis, 5,400. Now, this goes back to what we talked about at the top, that we're not trying to find the cheapest plays we can stomach. We're trying to find plays that three entry max, we could be like, yeah, I feel really good about these guys being on my roster. So running back being the position where you have the most bankable production because the usage is the most bankable, um, there are guys cheaper than this that, you know, in large field play, you could say, I'm going to take a shot on Chase Edmonds. In large field play, you could say, I'm going to take a shot on James Conner because if people are playing that Arizona backfield, they're almost certainly playing Chase Edmonds. James Conner's probably going to be 1.2% owned. And if he scores two touchdowns and picks up 70 yards and a couple catches, you're going to be soaring past a chunk of the field with, with that alone. You can make a case for Javante Williams. You can make a case for Melvin Gordon. There's lots of other guys. But as we get to smaller and smaller fields, as we get to bankroll building contests, we do want to lock in as much certainty as we can while still outmaneuvering the field. And so Mike Davis, Najee Harris are two guys who I would feel extremely comfortable rolling with on any type of roster in any contest size. I'd feel comfortable playing these guys in cash games even. So Najee Harris and Mike Davis are the two running backs we're going to put on this roster. And I'll, we, we've got one other guy who really doesn't require much discussion at this point. And that's Kyle Pitts at 4,400. You can check out the player grid for my deeper thoughts on the Kyle Pitts situation this week. So that leaves two spots left plus defense. So I'm going to hit on defense real quickly. We could go all the way down to the Falcons with Mike Davis and Kyle Pitts on this roster, I don't want to go down to the Falcons because it's harder to describe a game flow scenario in which, well, I talked about this earlier in the week and I don't remember where I talked about it. But since I talked about it, it was probably on one of the inner circle segments that we had this week. But Think about when we talk about studying first place rosters and knowing what first place rosters look like. Getting a 30 point score from a defense or a 22 point score from a defense is such an enormous separator. So, defense is a higher variance position. Uh, you're not just going to go out and get your 20 point score because sometimes the 20 point score comes from a, a bad defense. That's why you see, you know, there's different ways to approach defense. Hilo and three entry max, he's like, man, I, I nail defense all the time because of the things I look at. I'm going to play the sharpest defenses. I'm going to narrow down my pool to two or three defenses. I'm going to play only from that pool. You know, if, if it's 3,200, I'll play them. If it's 3,600, I'll, you know, I'm not going to prioritize that, but I'll find a way to consider that defense on my builds. Then you've got guys like Jonathan Bales, who again is a lot of times going to be focused on like larger field tournaments, but he'll have a defense that you can't even necessarily make like a super logical case for outside of maybe some narratives that you can come up with or whatever else. But when he, when he has one of those defenses that hits, it's 1% owned. And a lot of times you'll see these kind of random defenses that aren't necessarily in a great, great spot, but they end up getting two defensive touchdowns and scoring 20 points. If you get 20 points from defense and that's the only defense that week's week that scores over, you know, 10 or 12 outside of maybe the super expensive one that scores 14, but the person had to carve out a bunch of salary to get that. And everybody else, you know, like the 20% of the field who's on the sexy, cheap defense of the week, they all get their seven or eight points that they're happy with because they only spent 2,200 and got seven or eight points. 
you've still, you've spent whatever, let's say 2,900, 3,100, and you're sitting with 22 points. Like you're so far ahead of everyone. And if you can get one of those defenses that is 1% owned and scores a bunch, one of the additions that I'll have to the player grid addendum on Saturday is I've been looking at the Patriots, 3,900. Nobody's going to pay 3,900. They're below the 49ers. They're above the Broncos. Nobody's going to carve out the salary and, and specifically target that Patriots defense. But Will Fuller's out. Devontae Parker doesn't look great right now. I'd have to double check this, but I think there's still some uncertainty of whether he's definitely going to be playing or not. The Dolphins aren't aren't built to run the ball. Everything in their offense is designed for them to throw the ball 40, 40 times a game, which means that they are, A, being relatively one-dimensional against a defense that will look to exploit that, but B, they're playing on the road against a good defense that's that's got their player. Well, they don't have Stefan Gilmore, but um, they've got, you know, all their other healthy pieces and their, their COVID opt-outs back. A pass-heavy game script means opportunities for sacks, turnovers. You have uh, Mayo and Steve Belichick calling that defense that's very aggressive-minded, you know, zero blitzes throughout the game. And uh, that that is to say not no blitzes, but <laughs> zero blitz, which is, you know, no safeties, man coverage, and you're just bringing the house, putting pressure on the quarterback. So that's the type of separator that we can get in tournaments when we're kind of thinking about, hey, look, we're not going to get defense right. Every, we're not going to get our 20-point score from defense every week, but let's find those 20-point scores that that people might not be on. Looping that back into this bottom-up build, the Falcons can fit, like the Falcons can have a solid eight or nine point game and Pitt and Mike Davis be on a tournament winning roster. But for a tournament winning roster, you optimally want to, we always say, once you put a player on that particular roster, you are saying on that particular roster that this player has a tournament winning game. So if I put the Falcons on this roster, I'm optimally, I'm, I'm saying this defense is going to score 15 to 20 points. In a scenario where this defense scores 15 to 20 points, it's harder to see Kyle Pitts and Mike Davis combining for a tournament-winning output themselves. Now, Kyle Pitts and Mike Davis work great on a roster together because this is a concentrated offense. They're probably going to have 90 to 95 total DFS points outside of Matt Ryan. Um, Speaking of Matt Ryan, that's going to be another addendum to the player grid uh, that I was toying around with that earlier in the week. Then Larejo laid out the case for that in his article. And it just kind of pushed me on to not necessarily guaranteed to have a Matt Ryan roster. You guys know that I'm already on this Kyle Pitts thing. I'm on the Ridley thing. I'm on the Mike Davis thing. I'm on the Jalen Hurts thing. So, uh, but just throwing Matt Ryan more deeply into consideration for myself on those rosters. Uh, But we're going to get, you know, 90, probably 90 to 95 points out of this offense. And this offense is, you know, you look through a box score and looking at box scores is super valuable just to really understand what they look like and and how teams distribute the ball. There's going to be, you know, two or three random guys who we won't even be thinking of who get some, get some catches, siphon off some production from these other guys. But there's really four guys in this offense. It's, It's, Pitts, it's Gage, it's Ridley, and it's Mike Davis. Now, you speak about leverage. Russell Gage is the ultimate leverage because Mike Davis isn't going to be popular, but, you know, five, six, seven, eight percent owned. Uh, Ridley's probably going to be about 20% owned. Pitts, I I honestly think he'll be 25% owned this week in most tournaments. If he's not, then as Levitan would say, Yahtzee for us. But if Gage, Gage, who you guys know, I love Gage. I've told you I have 40% gauge in best ball, ninth, 10th round Russell Gage in best ball this year. And actually, this is a very, very random thing to point you toward, um, but it's where we have it on the site right now. Um, and I doubt most of you are thinking about this because we're all thinking about DFS. If you haven't gotten on underdog yet, but you've been like, oh yeah, I want to dabble on that. There, the the I'll be doing a bunch of drafts this year, like weekly drafts and um probably dropping some thoughts and content around that throughout the season. Uh, anyhow, uh, Underdog's been running a promo where if you deposit $10, you get 25 free. 
that ends on Sunday and it becomes deposit $10, get $10 free. So if you were already thinking that you wanted to hop on Underdog, I would encourage you to take advantage of that. We have that promo at the bottom of the Eagles Falcons game. I guess I'll, I'll go ahead and add it into the, the player grid as well. So it's easier for you to find it. Um, but if you wanted to take advantage of that before the, I think it's the end of Sunday that that expires, um, go ahead and hop on that. So Russell Gage, I've, I love Russell Gage, um, maximum leverage because if he hits for a tournament winning game, he's like going to be one or 2% owned and he's hurting all these other rosters because Pitts, Ridley, Mike Davis, they're all less likely to have tournament winning games themselves if Gage is getting all this production and, and posting a tournament winning score. So Gage is not a player that I've been able to isolate because he is the number four on this offense. But there are going to be weeks this year where he has a big game. And if this is that week, he provides maximum leverage. All that to say, Mike Davis and Pitts work well on a roster together because you can say, hey, they're going to be like 90 points. And I can I can divvy up where these points are going. Like if you say that we get 15 to 20 random points and then Calvin Ridley finishes on the low end of his range and gets 20 and then Gage gets seven or eight, like you still have 42 and really 20 isn't quote low end of Ridley's range. He could get 15, 16 points. Uh, he probably won't, but he could. But even all that, that leaves you with over 40 points for Davis and Pitts. And you can easily come up with scenarios where they end up with 50 combined points this week. So they work well together on a roster. And again, it effectively lowers the Pitts ownership a little bit because you now have a pairing from that game that the pairing itself is much lower owned than the, than the individual player. Works well together where if this offense is doing well enough for Pitts to have a tournament winning score, the chances of Mike Davis also having a tournament winning score go up because that means this offense is doing really well. All works together really nicely. Okay, so defense. I don't have the Falcons on this roster, so who do I have? Well, here's one that wasn't in the player grid, and I might not actually end up with them at all, but I think they're really interesting, and that's the Buffalo Bills at 2,500. There's been a lot of talk on OWS about this being a sneaky potential shootout spot. Hilo's talked about it. I've talked about it. I think it was mentioned somewhere else in the scroll as well, but... We should also keep in mind that these two teams played to, I believe it was a 26 to 15 score last year. And more importantly, we should keep in mind that the it's a it's a road game for the Steelers against a really good team. Their their Vegas implied team total is under 21. Uh, it's not outlandish to bet on Ben Roethlisberger taking some sacks if the if this defense is no longer as focused on the uh, short, quick passing, they still have a bad offensive line. So some sacks and then interceptions are always, you know, in the mix for Big Ben as well. So Buffalo Bills at 2,500 is where I am going on this bottom-up build. Okay, last two spots. One of them is very obvious because I've talked about it a lot. The other one, I guess, is also somewhat obvious because you guys probably know that I really like this player, but... Um, I had said earlier that I might, I said in the player grid that I might not end up with this player because I couldn't find any way that he really helped me from a strategy standpoint, but that is starting to open up. So the first player is Marquez Valdez-Scantling. What I love about Marquez Valdez-Scantling is he provides so much strategy benefit like across the board. So he's in this cheap wide receiver range that... Everybody else is going to different wideouts here. And so if Marquez Valdez-Scantling outperforms those wideouts, you're gaining an edge. That same, you might have a similar roster construction to everybody else, but you're picking up more points down there on this lower end of the price range. Devontae Adams should be popular this week. If Marquez Valdez-Scantling is having a tournament-winning game, that is lowering the likelihood of Devontae Adams at his high, high price tag having a tournament winning game because Devontae Adams at his high price tag, 30 points will get it done, but you're optimally hoping for like one of those 35 to 40 point games. So it's not saying that Devontae Adams is going to disappoint, 
it's Devontae Adams. We know his role. We know his skill set. Like he almost certainly won't disappoint. But you give Devontae Adams 20, 22, 25 points in a game where Marquez Valdez-Scantling is getting 20 to 25 points because there's only so many points to go around. If Marquez Valdez-Scantling is going up, 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 then Devontae Adams is, you know, he's at the top of the elevator, right? But he's still going down from there, down to kind of this mid-range of scoring. Uh, or I should say in the mid-range of scoring. We're talking about Marquez Valdez-Scantling, his ceiling kind of reaching Devontae Adams' floor. So the um, mid-range of scoring for a player like Devontae Adams. Uh, Marquez Valdez-Scantling having a tournament-winning score also lowers the likelihood of Aaron Jones having a tournament-winning score. Aaron Jones won't be super popular, somewhere in that 5 to 10% range, I would think. But people will be going to Aaron Jones to try to gain leverage off of Devontae Adams. So just a lot of different ways that the Marquez Valdez-Scantling play benefits you, right? Because if Marquez Valdez-Scantling is getting you a tournament-winning score, not only are you getting those points, points are great, but also from a strategy and roster construction standpoint, you're benefiting while other rosters around you are getting actively hurt by you benefiting. So again, that combo punch, that one-two punch of their rosters are going down, your rosters are going up, not just because you're getting points they're not getting, but also you're taking away points from their rosters. And in fact, I don't think we've ever phrased it that way before in finding all these different ways to explain what we're talking about here, but it's it's finding these plays that optimally not only are you getting points, but you're literally like stealing points from other people's rosters because this high-owned player is now not getting those points in this spot. The other player is Paris Campbell. You guys know I have about 60% Paris Campbell exposure in best ball, mostly because he was you know, available in the 14th, 15th round and should have been getting drafted in the 9th, 10th, 11th round. So what I originally said in the player grid was I might not end up with Paris Campbell myself because there's no, there didn't appear to be any direct strategy elements. And then you're just saying, well, I like this player and I think he'll have a good game, but now you're needing to outscore all these other cheap wide receivers. And that doesn't really benefit you in any other way because it's not like there's a lot of attention on this Seattle-Indianapolis game. So then you would say, well, it would be better to play Paris Campbell as part of some sort of game stack. He doesn't work super well in a pairing with Michael Pittman, even though they're both cheap, just because the Colts do spread the ball out so much. You know, their box scores oftentimes are nine, 10 guys getting targets in a game. So it's not like the Jets offense where you would expect that you can say, well, we play these two guys together and one of them is getting points and the other one is probably not disappointing. And so we take all the points and might, they might both put up 15 to 20 points and it would work to play them together, but you don't get that certainty that you're looking for in these two player pairings. So why am I moving toward Paris Campbell now? Well, Michael Pittman's ownership has started to go up. Some sites have him up at like eight, nine, 10%. Some sites have him up at like 13, 14%. So if Michael Pittman is on 10, 12, 15% of rosters, and Paris Campbell is on one or two or 3% of rosters and Paris Campbell hits, now I'm getting some strategy advantage. It's not just like, okay, I'm getting points, but also I'm taking points away from Michael Pittman rosters. I'm taking points away from this other chunk of the field. And so Paris Campbell at 3,700 goes on the bottom up build. And I might be able to justify getting him onto one or two of my rosters this week. Put it all together, what do we have? We have Zach Wilson, Corey Davis, and Elijah Moore as a 12.9K player block. We have Najee Harris at 6,300, Mike Davis at 5,400. We have Kyle Pitts at 4,400. Again, he pairs nicely with our Mike Davis play. The Falcons defense does not fit on this because of the way we're playing those Falcons players. So we're going to go with the Bills defense in this spot which again is a defense that I am actually starting to consider for my builds as well. I'm only going to be, I'm, I'm three entry max, but I'll also have some single entry play. And I'm, I'm starting to gravitate toward the idea, mostly because I've gotten used to building 14 to 19 rosters. So uh, I'm gravitating toward the idea of doing what Hilo does, which is a separate roster for that single entry play than I have for my three entry max. So that would give me four rosters in total. That's not a lot of space for, you know, 
getting a bunch of different players on because you also want to have some bets that you're making that you say, hey, I have them on all my rosters or three of my rosters so that if they hit, all my rosters are getting that boost. Anyhow, so the the Bills might not make it onto one of my rosters, but they're in consideration for me at this point. And then we wrap things up with Marquez Valdez-Scantling, who I will definitely have at least one piece of this week for all the reasons I've laid out throughout the week. And Paris Campbell, who I will hopefully have on one of my rosters just because I really like the guy. Um, and obviously, now that now that we have some strategy angles to play with him, potentially we'll see how that shakes out with ownership. Uh, it kind of gives me the go-ahead to actually put him on a roster and not feel like I'm just doing it because I like him as a player. With all of that, we are done. First Angles podcast in the books. Uh, For any of you who have listened to the end of this podcast, just want to say thanks so much for being part of OWS. It's a blast to do this. It's it's much more of a blast. Uh, Roto Maven and I were talking about this a week or two ago, but this is a lot more fun now that I've got the, you know... Me putting in 90 hours of work before could never have gotten done what we've been able to get done with all these extra hands pitching in their hours as well, their minds as well, um, their ability to see different things on the site. So it's been a lot of fun. Uh, It's been obviously a blast to put this together for you guys. So um, thanks for hanging out. Thanks for being a part of everything that we're doing here. We will see you on the site throughout the weekend. And I'll see you at the top of the leaderboards on Sunday.